Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. But aside from the two senators, there was another man who was the subject of placards, Judge W. Arthur Garrity, Jr. The general consensus was that Garrity deserved to be hanged. A new touch was the abundance of tea bags, apparently to signify the demonstrate, that the demonstrators were in the same vein as those who tipped the tea into the harbor. There were American flags, and of course, there were special t-shirts. He knew he was in hostile territory, but never before had a Kennedy been met with such a reception in Boston. He was booed. The crowd would not calm down. They shouted at him. Some said, kill him. Even the speakers could not calm the crowd. The audience made the gesture of turning their backs on Kennedy. His attempt to speak failing, he left the platform. The crowd sur surged towards this one's favorite son. It was a strange crowd to surround a Kennedy. As he walked towards the federal building, tomatoes and newspapers started flying, and the nonviolence stopped. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. I'm very lucky to be joined this week by author Jan Brogan, who has a new book. Welcome to the show. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. What is it that we're here to talk about? This is an interesting uh, case, and uh, I know that you're a, a novelist and a author, and this book is very interesting, and the, the case that we're here to talk about, it's very intriguing, and it goes back about 40-plus years. Yeah. Give us a little background on what we're talking about today. So I'm a journalist by training. Um, I also write fiction, and uh, I wrote for murder mysteries. I What I kept saying was I knew I could write a story. I knew I felt like I got story structure down. And I kept saying, I, 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 I'm looking for a story that needs to be told. And I said that to enough people that I eventually got guided to this story. And this is a story that really does need to be told. It's a story, uh, 1976, the Harvard football team, as was its custom, as was its Harvard ritual, went to Boston, the combat zone, which is Boston's old red light district, and two of its football players wound up getting stabbed, one fatally. Why this story needs to be told is because it's been mistold so many times. Uh, it, it happened during the um, during Boston was at its absolute worst during uh, busing, and there was pretty much a racial war going on in the city. And this trial, this trial, this is you know three black men were were charged equally with murder in the first degree of Andrew Popolo, who was a white kid from a, originally from a poor Italian neighborhood, North End. And uh, he would be portrayed first as Harvard privilege, which he wasn't, he was working class, then as having to do with busing in the neighborhoods, which he had nothing to do with. It was important to clear up his name and the, mis the misconceptions about this case, but it was also important in a very another in another way because it changed criminal justice up until this case if the defendant was black 
the lawyers would get rid of all the black potential black jurors, and they were allowed to do that without giving a reason. If if it was a woman who was raped, they could get rid of all the women on the jury and not give a reason. If the person was Hispanic, they could get rid of... And and the defense in this case actually got rid of everyone with an Italian last name because the defendant was Italian. This is the way business was done, not just in Boston, but throughout the nation. It was so common that it still occurs to this day in certain states. If you have an all-white jury pool, you're going to have an all-white jury. You know, uh, even today, if if you there's two people in the black jury pool, there's you know if you strike a couple of them, it's not going to cause any red flags. But you can't strike ten out of eleven potential black jurors because you want to cherry pick your jury, and that's what changed after this trial. So that's why it's very important. It also this trial, Boston had a this murder is the beginning of the end of Boston's combat zone. And Boston's combat zone was this, uh, which people are very nostalgic about now. I'm intrigued by this. Okay, so let me tell you what combat zone was like. So, you know, Boston's known for being a puritanical city, right? Historically, I mean, it it banned Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. It banned (laughs) I Am Curious Yellow. But in 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 the 1960s, it had a kind of small almost by today's standards, quaint red light district called Scully Square. And it wanted to get rid of it. So it used urban renewal funds to bulldoze over it and build today's Boston City Hall, which regularly gets voted, just recently gets voted voted one of the 10 ugliest buildings architecturally in the, in the nation. So Scully Square kind of got its revenge. But so they, they bulldozed Scully Square, but they realized that, or they soon learned that Urban planning is no match for market forces. That demand for, uh, and remember, there's no internet then. So that demand for pornography and titillation, that just moved a few blocks down to what we call Lower Washington, where there were some old theaters. And remember, this is a time in 1976 when cities are all crumbling, right? Now you can't buy real estate in a city. But then, because of federal highway practices, which was made it very advantageous to develop the suburbs and made it affordable for people to go to the suburbs, cities were dying. This is the year that New York City almost went bankrupt, and that was epitomized. There were pictures, everyone remembers the pictures of trash just building up on the city streets because they couldn't afford to, they couldn't afford to uh, get rid of it. The union was, you know, they were fighting the union. And Boston was not far, was not far behind. Cleveland even default, I believe, defaulted or went right. bankrupt at one point. And so cities are very poor, and Boston was actually the poorest, had the highest concentration of urban white poverty in the nation. This will this will actually be a factor in the busing problems too. But and the reason it does is because it has a huge, has a huge housing project in Southie. Everyone knows Southie from the movies. That was at that point very segregated and only whites were allowed. But there was a huge amount of immigration at that time in the, in the late 60s, early 70s into Boston and from Ireland, from 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 India, from everywhere, because immigrants wanted to go there because it's known for its great higher education. Right. It's known people move there, but immigrants are poor because they just got there. Right. They don't have jobs yet. They're not established. So it adds to the poverty of a city. And Boston was geographically very segregated. I mean, all cities had some segregation. And like, you know, when I grew up in New Jersey, there was the Lithuanian neighborhood and the Polish neighborhood and, you know, that stuff. But in Boston, this was reinforced with geography in that 
you know, Southie is surrounded on three sides by water. Charlestown is surrounded by, you know, water and a bridge. The North End was cut off from, which is the Italian section, was cut off by the highway. There, There's a lot of geographic that just, that just reinforced tribalism at a time when the baby boom is creating all these young men, right? You have kind of a perfect storm. So anyway, so the cities are dying and they're, and they don't kind of don't know what to do. And they're also, all of them are being sort of infiltrated by this, this new industry, the uh, sex entertainment industry, right? You know, so they can afford the theaters are turned over to X-rated films. Uh, some of the clubs become strip clubs in, and uh, there's peep shows, there's steam baths, and the cities are trying to figure out what to do about it, right? Because it, it, it also decreases property values, which they're already teetering, right? And the neighborhoods don't want anything like this in, in, in their, on their turf. In Boston, it's a Supreme Court decision and a Massachusetts High Court decision made it very hard to define what was obscene. And it made it really hard to put people out of business. So Boston's solution and was, uh, and Congressman Barrett, Barney Frank was an architect of this, he was an aide in the city hall at the time, was to legislate, was to zone, if you zone an area for it, then you can make it illegal outside that area. So that's what they did. The city hall got together and they zoned four blocks in downtown Boston as the lower Washington next to Chinatown, where which had no political power for uh, adult entertainment. And they did that in 74. And the idea was they would improve uh, police policing. They would improve lighting. They would clean it up. They would do stuff in signage. And they had some beautiful plans, but they're poor, right? City's poor. So it doesn't, aside from like some early attempts to improve signing, it doesn't do much. And it didn't take into effect two very important factors. One, this is the heyday of the mob. Right. And the mafia is ensconced in the North End, which is is the same police district as the combat zone. It's the heyday where they're making what today would be like a million dollars a week in revenue. The police department is the most corrupt in the nation, according to the police commissioner who was brought in to clean it up. It was very strong. So very quickly, it gets out of hand. And so on a Saturday night in the combat zone. You would, on LaGrange Street, which is where I think the two o'clock lounge in Good Time Charlie's was, it's a very small, short street. It would be packed, 60 or 70. They call them sex workers now, but I'm going to call them prostitutes because that's what they were called in the day, would be packed there. This is an era where there's not much credit cards. People don't use credit cards. People don't like to use credit cards when they're at the strip club where they're buying drugs or they're buying sex. So everybody is carrying a lot of cash. It becomes a haven for muggers and pickpockets. People are getting rolled all the time. It's the only part in state Boston that has neon. So there's this flashing neon light, and it's this kind of dangerous, exciting neighborhood. And it becomes a rite of passage to go there, particularly if you're a young man, particularly if you're a young man on a football team, right? Uh, you know, you never know what's going to happen. The p- police, actually, it's a four block area. And because the police were all, before this police commissioner got there, they were allowed to make extra money by working detail for the, the strip clubs, which let them drink for free on and off duty. You, mm-hmm. On a Saturday night, they, they called it the drive through In that four block area, it would be an absolute gridlock as 
you know, women solicited business men through open windows, drugs were sold through open windows, cops turned the other way. It was crime was up fourfold. It was crazy. It was wild. It was crazy. And it was the Harvard football team's uh, ritual to go there every year after the breakup dinner after the and to have a last drink together as a team. Now, in fairness to Harvard, it wasn't just Harvard. I have a friend who played for Boston College. He said they did it too. Someone told me Northeastern, all the football teams did it. And they, in, at BC, they called it force night. And the idea was you went there in force, which kind of made you safer. This particular night did not make anybody any safer. Oh. Uh, they all went. They, they leave the Harvard Club. They have a, a banquet at the Harvard Club. Okay. Ethel Kennedy comes, flies in to give uh, an award in the name of her husband. It's very Tony. And at the end, 40, upwards of 40 football players go to the combat zone for a last drink together as a team. And they have a private room at the Naked Eye, which is a very popular strip club, best known for its all-college girl review. And they, they have a show. They have, they've been drinking all night. They have a good time at the show. The, some of them even get up on the stage and dance with the stripper until the bouncers pull them down. At 2 a.m., they spill out onto the street. They came, some came by, tea, by the trolley, which we call in Boston, which is the subway. They come by their personal cars. They, even the Harvard football equipment team drives down eight of them with the equipment manager. This is how okay it was, right? So Andy Popolo, and one of the really sad things about this story is Andy Popolo will go down in Boston history as the guy who got stabbed trying to get his money back from a prostitute. That is so far from the truth. He was in the back of a car with a bunch of with his friends waiting to get home. He he was already uh, accepted into medical school. He had had a concussion on Sunday's game, so he, he wasn't drinking that much. He wanted he had exams that week. He was in the back of a car, already waiting with somebody else waiting for the their driver to to get in when this happened. Six other football players and the equipment team manager. When they're leaving, they walk past the Carnival Lounge. So outside the Carnival Lounge are some young girls, one's 16, one's 21. They are dressed like prostitutes, and they, but they're really pickpockets. And this was a very, very common scheme. It was known as, this is what they called it, in the, all the, the robber whore scheme. And young women would dress up as prostitutes, and they were usually black because as a guy who was a pimp in the neighborhood told me only the white girls could get pimps. That's how stratified Boston was at the time. So they're young girls. And I actually wound up talking to uh, one of their daughters who told me that her mother was on, had a drug problem and they were there to get drugs. So, and they're trying to finance the drugs by pickpocketing. And the way it worked, it was called the robber horse scheme. And it was, it had been reported on extensively. And what happens is as the men are leaving the bar at two in the morning, the girls sidle up to them and kind of proposition to them, fondle them, and they steal the wallet. If you're going to get a guy to uh, Distract. give up his wallet <laughs> a good way. 2 a.m. after the bars, it's yeah. a pretty good way to do it. Right. So what had happened was just the week before, I think it's a week and a half before, the outgoing police commissioner who had been called into, um, who had been called, who had been hired in Boston to clean up the corruption, I found himself stymied by largely the union and uh, the mayor's worries about his political power. 
he had commissioned a secret investigation into his own police force over 33 months. And he dropped the results of this uh, on the press just the week before. And in that report, detailed police corruption, like from small to large, like small being mobsters could double and triple park you know, without trouble. Large being the cops would tip off the mob to their own department's investigations. Was this the time when Whitey was running amok? Uh, Whitey, Whitey was running amok, but at that point, Whitey's still a little contained by the power of the Angelo brothers, who are the mob. Okay, yeah. This is before, but Whitey, there are stories, you know, about Whitey being involved, but not particularly. So th- this report also said the mob owned at least 40% of the, of the combat zone businesses. And pretty much if they didn't own them, they were getting protection money on them. But one of the things this report said is there's this new scam. And what, what, well, they say the robber horse scam, the, there's a new wrinkle in the scam. And that's hustlers get paid take, for providing protection for the women in case a guy notices and fights back. Uh, there are men now, protectors, who get a cut of the wallet. I talked to De Gracia, who was uh, Robert De Gracia, who was the commissioner shortly. Lucky, I was lucky to interview him before he passed away. And he told me not only did low level hustlers do it, but dirty cops did it. They would protect a woman from a pickpocket for a cup of a wallet. And he said the saddest thing was how much $5 could buy you at that time. That This plays large into the way this case will be prosecuted, uh, which is why I bring it up. They get solicited. They wind up back in the Harvard van with two. Young, one young prostitute jumps in. She's 16. She's on a guy's lap. Uh, they're they're trying to get her back, or he's trying to get her to come back to the Har- to the uh, Harvard campus. She says no, jumps out, and someone says, "Hey, Charlie, check your wallet," and it's missing. There's an equipment manager and six six Harvard football players. Three of them are black, three of them are white. Now this is during busing, and they, they know enough. They're like, "We're not getting out of the van. We're not getting in trouble with the cops, right?" The white kids and the equipment manager jump out. They chase the prostitutes. It winds up. Up, the, up Boylston Street and a face-off with three black men come out of the Carnival Lounge. Uh, one of them uh, kicks somebody to the, one of the Harvard football players to the ground. Kid got more Harvard football players on the street get involved. Uh, so that it turns out this Edward Soros, who will become one of the defendants, is surrounded by about eight or nine uh, Harvard football players in front of the tee up on Boylston Street, which is at, at the Boston Common corner of the Boston Common. I have read both sets of transcripts at least three times. There's no testimony that there was actually any actual physical fighting going on. Edward Soros, who is drunk by his own admission, by his own testimony, drunk, deliberately drunk because he's, he's about to take a long bus ride to New York, is doing these kind of karate chop things and, uh, you know, kung fu. The Harvard football player, uh, Tom Lincoln, says... He doesn't have a wallet. Let's go. But hes they're all laughing at this guy. And I think that might have been the crucial error. Because at that moment, Leon Easterling comes in and stabs Tom Lincoln in the stomach. The Harvard equipment manager says, they've got knives. Run. All the white kids, all the Harvard players turn around and run back to the, to the van, which is parked in an alley uh, off Boylston Street. So they run about a, like a full block. Three black guys chase them. Leon Easterling, Edward Soros, Richard Allen was a bouncer, was working as a bouncer at the Carnival Lounge, is also Easterling's half brother. And then a man who never gets named, he's called the man in the cranberry jacket. 
That's what the testimony says. People will testify he's white. They will testify he's black. They will testify he's Hispanic. And uh, Danny Popolo, the victim's younger brother, who is really kind of the heart and soul of this of this book, because his story is largely about his quest for first just, justice and then revenge, he thinks maybe he was Italian. Because that would explain why nobody ever finds him and he never gets arrested. The four of them run after the Harvard football players. It's not until Andy Popolo sees his teammates running down the street and being chased, he starts to follow. And he follows them. And when he gets to an, the alley where the, Harvard, where the Harvard van is packed, everybody's in except for one football player, Charlie, who's, who's very drunk. And uh, he's being slammed against the van by the man in the cranberry jacket. And the whole, the whole van is shaking. So he jumps in to defend his teammate. Tom Lincoln has actually pulled Charlie into the car. And Edward Soros is there by his own admission, wanting to fight. And he and Andy get into a fist fight and they fist fight around the van. Right. So all this is happening in like five minutes. Right. Leon Easterling jumps over Edward Soros's back and stabs Andy Popolo in the stomach. One of the other Harvard football players from the street comes and picks up Andy and he says, you're right. He says, I'm okay. And he says, let's get out of here. And he's like, yes. They turn towards the street. They're walking to the street to flee. They're in retreat. And Leon Easterling comes back and stabs him in the stomach and up into the heart. Oof. And all this is all this is backed by very detailed medical evidence. It's kind of incontrovertible. The two, two, two separate wounds. At that moment, police arrive. And they know that Andy will never make it if they wait for an ambulance. So they take him in the wagon to uh, Tufts, which is, is known for its uh, combat medicine, which is only like three minutes away. They get him there in under five minutes and they start working on him. He, when he arrives, he's dead on arrival, uh, but they're able to restart his heart. That night, the family gets called. Danny Popolo is 19 at the time. His 21-year-old brother is his hero. It's his, they're very close. They've been in the same bedroom all their lives. They're both athletes there. And Andy had asked Danny to come meet them that night. And, and Danny had said, no, it's your last night together as a team. You don't need me around to look after. And because of that, he will, will feel guilty the rest of his life. Overnight, it's, it's looking good. The doctors are optimistic that Andy's going to make it. And this story is huge, not just in Boston, because Boston's solution to the pornography problem was so controversial and you know the rest of the nation going boston boston's doing this you know and because it's harvard and because it's a two white guys stabbed by three black guys who were who were arrested and charged at you know at the time more than 300 newspapers across the nation and in in the stars and stripes in japan will cover this when the family is, you know, after the surgery, when the family's going to leave the hospital the next morning to, to go get breakfast and come back before Andy wakes up, they look down and there's TV vans already in the street. Newspaper reporters that the hospital comes to them and they say, look, we'll, we'll guide you to your car. You don't have to talk to anybody. We'll handle everything. The police commissioner, they have a press conference the next morning. To say that police in District 1 were in need of some good press would be an understatement. Remember, just the week before, they were proven to be the most corrupt sect part of a corrupt police department, right? So now you have the doctor saying, if it wasn't for the fast action of the 
police, this kid would be dead. But just that they saw, they did not wait for the ambulance. They got him there. They're heroes, right? So this is like, if it were today, you'd say it's going viral, right? It's a big... How did it go so viral so fast? I mean, like, that's the definition of viral. But it, without the internet, how in the world did the news spread so quickly? Well, you get AP. Was... So you have AP. Okay. Uh, right. Okay. So you, yeah. that night, it's Harvard, right? And that night, the emergency room will be filled not just with harvard students but with the dean of students i mean the coaches these are you know these are semi-famous coaches you know everybody at yale knows about it because they just had their you know they just had their game with them i mean it just it's a big deal and boston at that time is during blessing so boston is always in the news this is a poor family their son their you know their shining star and all of a sudden it's like in the public domain and so, and also it's a, becomes a political thing. So he represents Harvard privilege, right? So, you know, Harvard is having fundraisers for him. They're saying masses all over the city. And then Ted Kennedy, Ted Kennedy sends them a letter. Uh, the Pope sends them a letter. They have this lounge at Tufts, which like every priest in the city is coming. The city councilors are stopping by. They're getting letters from all across the nation with, with a dollar in them. They're like, what is this? The Pope sends him a blessed medal. It's GoFundMe you... before GoFundMe. It's GoFundMe before GoFundMe. So they don't even want the money. Parent, the family wants, they, all they want is their son to come out. Right. And they were told it was a miracle that he lived, and they believe in miracles. They have a psychics who decide to come tell them he's going to come out of his, he's going to come out of his, his coma. He never comes out of his coma. So, and at the same time, during this month he's in the coma, the police commissioner, the new police commissioner and the Suffolk County District Attorney come out and say, the combat zone is a failed experiment. It needs to be closed down. We are going to prosecute. They start prosecuting all these strip clubs that have been selling drinks to minors. Every little, vi every single violation, they try to get dancing, new dancing outlawed. They, they close down you know, because the, the Suffolk County District Attorney has, prior to this, been conducting its own in the investigation on the combat zone. And the District Attorney, Garrett Byrne, wants nothing more than to shut it down. So this is in the news every day that cops come in and they pretty much shut down the combat zone. All the prostitutes are out of business or they're, they're pushed into the other neighborhoods. The, other, the rest of the city isn't happy about that. So it's super controversial. The Raymond Flynn, who will be the next mayor and he'll go on to become the ambassador to Rome. He is in there the next day. He had, he'd been a, he played professional basketball and he had actually coached Andy Popolo as a kid. And he is there the next day with, with petitions sitting in the combat zone to sh get signatures, to shut it down. Was this just the straw that broke the camel's back? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty okay. much. It's, it's, it's the straw that like it was, the combat zone was controversial nationally. It was also controversial in the city because there was just crime had increased fourfold. It's, it's a blight on the city. So, I mean, it's a blight on the city. On the other hand, the city is very ambivalent about it up until now because a lot of, it draws a lot of tourism. The convention business depends on it, right? They had been ambivalent up until this moment. And this is like, okay, we're done. Uh, it will take them a long time to actually get rid of the combat zone. It's a slow death, but this is the moment where the where the Boston Redevelopment Authority says, "Okay, we're going to price them out. We're going to bring in new tenants, 
and we're going to make it so expensive they can't do business there. Gentrification. Gentrification, right. That's when it begins. Andy dies in mid-December. The charges become murder in the first degree. Three black men, Leon Easterling, who actually did the stabbing, murder in the first degree. Edward Suarez, who was in a fist fight with Andy. And uh, Richard Allen, who was just basically there. They all get charged with murder in the first degree. The prosecutor, Tom Mundy, is using something called joint venture. Joint venture is like the felony murder rule, which says, you know, the guy who was driving the pick, the getaway car is this equal guilty for the murder. So they're saying that because Edward Soros and Richard Allen were up at that first fight where Leon Easterling stabbed Tom Lincoln, they knew he had a knife and they knew he would use it. When they follow, and there's, you know, testimony saying they're going, oh, I'm going to get you, you white motherfuckers, you know, there's uh, all sorts of testimony to that. When they follow them back to that, then they become the aggressors and they're it, they know he has a fight that uh, knife, he'll use it. That makes them equally guilty. That's very unusual to apply joint venture to a, you know, spontaneous brawl. But they're also saying, and this is where the whole Robert Hoare thing comes in. They're saying that those three men were working as paid protectors for the prostitute. Okay. And that makes it a conspiracy. So he's, he's arguing joint venture in two different ways. And, and the truth was, you know, Richard Allen was, was a hustler. Leonis, they were hustlers. They were hustlers in the combat zone. Edward Suarez actually sold jewelry. So he's kind of the out, outlier. But they charge them all three equally. And this is December of 1976. In March in 1977, they tried this case. That's three months later. <laughs> that never <laughs> No. Three months later. And I mean, we know what's going on in the justice system right now. and We all know right. what the, the, the idea of getting a trial off in three months is what we've heard is borderline ridiculous. And to think that these guys would have enough time to mount a defense or, you know, it it always brings me back to the guy, the cranberry jacket, you know, that's, that's where I, I, I keep going back there mentally. I mean, because it's easy to pick out the three black men because it's a city that's divided. It's divisive. It's, it's uh, the era of the Black Panthers. It's the Martin Luther King was assassinated, you know, within the last previous decade. And it's just on the forefront, especially in the city like Boston, where you basically laid it all out that it's super segregated. Yeah. And a lot of cities on the East Coast and even in Cleveland were super segregated because yeah. of Robert Moses and his development and the way that he designed the cities yeah. I put air quotes up there you know to make it little basically little pockets you know each yeah. like you said each city has its own little Polish area it's yeah. um whatever it's Ukrainian area it's Russian area and Boston it seems like obviously the the Irish the Italians and if the Italians and this is just me just yeah going off of what we're talking about I think it totally rings true with what you said earlier about how that's why he was never caught yeah is that he was Italian and that he had strings that he could pull 
that's one theory. I mean, um, I talked to a, one of the prosecutors in the second trial, and he said he 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 did not believe the Italian theory. Uh, so that's it's definitely it's definitely debatable. But they never find him. I mean, basically, he when when Tom Lincoln goes out to get Charlie and put, bring him in the van, he pushes the man in the cranberry jacket, and it's on an incline. And he and he and and he said and he and he fell, you know. He gets up and gets out of there. Who knows? Who knows? But anyway, so it's a so this is also during busing, right? So they're going to impanel, try to impanel a, a objective jury three months after the murder, while the combat zone is still in the headlines every like every night. Can you describe to the listeners exactly? Because there's a lot of younger listeners that yeah. don't know exactly what the busing was about and okay. what I know what it was about, yeah. but it was certainly a very controversial subject at that time. So if you could give me just a yeah. little background just for our yeah. listeners. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm happy to. Um, so this period of time is when Boston gets labeled the most racist city in the nation. What happens is it's very poor, remember, and everybody's got their, their poor neighborhoods. It's during the baby boom when you have a lot of students. This Boston School Committee, which is elected as a separate entity as opposed to appointed by the mayor, it is using its 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 office through the grandstanding. They're all they're all, the politicians. Louise Day Hicks becomes famous during this time. They're all using that as a launching pad to another office. They're not doing a good. The only thing they're doing for the schools is using patronage to hire the Irish or hire who they want in and give away jobs. They're not. The schools are a mess pretty much even in Southie and Charlestown. It's not like they're doing any, them any favors. They're really bad in the, in the, in the black neighborhoods, which at that point are Roxbury and Mattapan. The NAACP, I think, sues. And uh, this is like in the 60s for, you know, more equality in the schools. And the school committee fights them for over a decade. The, they are given every opportunity to solve this discrimination problem just by opening some magnet schools, right? They are given every opportunity to do something about it, and they keep resisting. It's the, you know they're protesting. They're they're a very activist, and so finally, and I think it's uh, in 1974, Judge Garrity comes to the federal judge, their last appeal, and he says, "No, you're going to have busing," and what he's going to do. And his plan is very punitive, right? It's like, we are going to punish you. It may not have been his intent, but that's how it feels. And also the city, this remember, the cities are poor and the suburbs are rich. And the suburbs, particularly like Newton and Lexington, the rich suburbs are saying, oh, you racists in the city, you're resisting. And, but meanwhile, they're not affected by it, right? But they're asking these poor immigrants, lots of times these poor people whose only you know, claim to fame is their son on the Charlestown football team, and, and you're asking them to give that up, and then you're asking them to take their kindergartners and bus them across to the, what they consider the most dangerous part of the city. So they erupt. They're out of control. They, I mean, they there are actually pictures of you know white parents throwing rocks at buses full of, of black children, right? And the violence, I was in college at the time there, and uh, I was a journalism major. And I still had no comprehension until I went back how violent it really was. There's one instance, and this is just a, one of many instances, where the, the, the uh, 
a kid, a black kid will stab a white kid in Southie High School. They'll take the white kid to the hospital. But be- while that happens, the high school is surrounded by 2,000 furious parents. 2,000 rioters who are overturning police cruisers. I mean, this is a violent crowd. Uh, Louise Day Hicks is their, their politician. She says, go home. And they say, you go home, uh, Louise. And, and they love her, right? They, they don't know how they're going to get the black kids out safely. They're afraid they're going to get killed. So they, they, they wind up, they get the, they wind up doing a faint where they, they, they send a, a, a squad one way and then they go out the other door and they get them out. The, the, the melee that will ensue afterwards, the school, the high school will have to be closed for two and a half weeks. That's when the bridge and tunnel, there are actually threats that the bridges and the tunnels are going to be blown up in Boston. That wow. is how violent it is. The first year they keep statistics on black and white violence. These, these are not just all hate crimes. These are just black and white. It's 604 instances in a single year of reported, reported, right? And that's <laughs> Key, in 1978 after the peak. This is the, these are the peak years. So who knows what the number was there? I mean, it was so violent in the schools. That explains my question from earlier about how quickly and why the national media was so on this. And yeah. it, it really does, the bus, explaining the busing really makes a difference. Because I do remember seeing videos and pictures of just anger, right. of rock throwing and just absolute just debauchery. I mean, right. like you said, rioting, basically. And, and so the white neighborhoods from where this jury will largely be picked... You know, they're in no, as, as the, uh, the black at- defense attorney for Richard Allen, Henry Owen, who is the pre- preeminent black attorney then, and he's still actually practicing. He said that the, the, the city was in no, the whites were in no mood to consider the, you know, constitutional rights of black defendants. Right. And, and they're angry for, you know, for good reason. The whole thing was handled badly. And so like takes them like, I think almost two weeks to impanel a jury. They have to go through a, a 186 potential jurors. And when you read the jury impanelment, there'll be people who are questioned, you know, the voir dire, and they'll say, the judge will say, well, now, you, you know, you're white, the defendants are black. Do you think you can put aside your feelings about race to be fair to them? And they'll just go, no, really, I can't, can't do it, you know? Maybe they were trying to get out of jury duty. But at, least, at least they were being honest, they were I being guess. Honest. I mean, I guess if there's anything there. That's... Right. So and also the jury in those days was uh, because people had to serve a month. Uh, there were a ton of exemptions, so the only people on the jury were retirees or people just out of school, or you know, like someone who didn't have to work. So it's very small or union union members because they got they got compensated by their contract. Those are the only people who, who who would be on the jury. So you have a and and there were very few blacks. Because of a the population of Boston is maybe at that point it's going from like sixteen to eighteen maybe it's eighteen percent, but the way the jury pool is designed it's it's based on voting rolls, uh, voter registration and at that point blacks did not register to vote in the same way so out of one hundred and eighty six, one hundred and eighty six potential jurors I think thirteen it's either twelve or thirteen of them are black, and Tom Mundy who is the prosecutor in this case he's he's passed away now but. He is a revered prosecutor. Uh, he was top then. He goes on to do some very important work later. Um, he is the guy who will try, I don't know if you have a Charles Stewart uh, case, 
where a white guy accuses a, uh, a black guy of, of killing his, yeah. So but he will actually charge the brother. And he's the one that eventually jumped off the bridge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but he is, he will, he will win the first ever prosecutor of the year award. He, he is, people love him, but he does business as usual. He's got to be under tremendous pressure for, in this case, because his boss wants the combat zone closed. So he charges all three of them, the black guys with murder in the first degree. He also feels very, he, a very strongly with the family. He lives up the street from them. They had moved to Jamaica Plain. Uh, Tom Mundy is an athlete. Andy Popolo is a young athlete. He's also, you know, by all accounts, just was a wonderful kid. And contrary to the rest of the city, he was not a racist. He was the only, he was in both Boston Latin and Harvard, the, his black teammates say he was like the first one to cross the line and make friends with blacks. He was always looking out for anybody who he thought was the underdog. And uh, he had my back. So unlike the rest of the city, he was not racist. Uh, his name will be caught up in the racism of the city. So what happens is they panel a jury and the, and Tom Mundy uses his peremptory challenges to strike 12 out of 13. I think it's 12, it might be 11 out of 12 or 12 out of 13 black jurors. Meanwhile, the defense strikes like 17 potential jurors who have Italian last names, right? So that's just the way they're doing business. And that is totally legal at the time. But Henry Owens, the, the black attorney representing Richard Allen, knows that he, his client, even though he didn't do anything, he doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of being acquitted in this case, partly because of the publicity, partly because the judge, Judge Roy, is known to be the hanging judge. From the very beginning, he's planning the appeal. From the very first day of jury and panel, he's like, why are you striking that black juror? I don't, you know, I just want to note for the record, this is the second black juror that has been struck without decision, right? And he keeps count and he will eventually file a, 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 an appeal. The trial, I think the, I think impanelment takes two weeks. I think the trial only takes like six days, six or seven days. And it's three, a very complex case. Three There's, months to prepare Two yeah. weeks to impanel a jury and a six-day trial. Yeah, three days. Well, the defense has very little. The, the defense is very weak. But um, at the end, I have to say the prosecutor has a very strong case based on the medical evidence alone, particularly against Leon Easterling. Leon Easterling says he did it. He's trying to say he's doing it in defense of, of Edward Soros. Edward Soros' testimony says I had nothing to, you know, the defendants counter each other. Their, their testimony is... You know, they contradict each other. Do they and all have the, different lawyers? Yeah, they all have different lawyers. And Henry Owens wants his, he wants him tried separately because he knows his, his, his clients doesn't stand a chance because the evidence against Easterling is so strong. The jury recesses at noon on a Thursday. They go to deliberations. They're sequestered, but they don't work past like five or six. At 10.20 the next morning, they have a decision and all three are guilty uh, in the first degree. And that will do it for part one of my conversation with author Jan Brogan. You can pick up her book, The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston Struggle for Justice, wherever you get your favorite books. We will pick up part two in just a few minutes. So check it out. And as you guys know, I drop new episodes every Friday and I've been doing two-parters most recently. So I'm going to keep that up for a while, and I hope you've enjoyed them. So, again, thanks for listening. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or X, 
You can do so at BillHuffman3 or on Instagram at slow, that's S-L-O, underscore burn media. And again, thanks for listening. If you want to leave a review, you can do so. Otherwise, I will be back with a brand new episode in just a few minutes, and I'll drop a new episode next Friday as well. Thanks again for listening. As always, until next time, stay healthy and be safe. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.